Come on in close because I have something I want to show you. Don't get too far away. There we go. <laughs> you see what's in this picture? What's that? Yeah. And you say, well, what's the big deal? I see water all the time. Water is a really very big deal. You know that? Do you know that you started before you took your breath? Your beginning in this world, you were floating in water. You know, your mother was carrying you, and you were floating in water. Water's really important. And after you got here and you took your first breath, it wasn't long till you needed a good bit of water. You know what I heard this week? A man my age needs to drink about 14 cups of water a day. I'm a little behind today. I got it. <laughs> got to catch up. You know what else I found out about us? 60% of us, like you're looking at me, I'm looking at you. 60% of what I'm looking at right now when I look at you is water. Isn't that something? You got skin and you got bones and you got organs, but guess what? You got a lot of water in you. And for you and me to be happy, to be strong, to be alive, we have to keep drinking water. Without water, there's no life. So you see what God was doing in baptism? Did you see me up there and Luke? And we baptized two wonderful children, right? Did you see them? Okay. Bella and James Anderson. And God used water. This is God's way of saying, I'm going to take something that's a part of your life every day, something you need to show you how much I love you. God gave us water, God gave us life, and God gave us water, baptism, to bless us, to show us how much God loves us. Sometime before the day is over, you're going to drink a glass of water, I hope. Or before the day is over, I hope you're going to go into the bathroom and turn on the faucet to brush your teeth. Okay? You stick your hand in that water and let it run over your fingers, and you go, oh, God made me, God blesses me, that's what baptism is all about. Now some of you have been baptized, I have baptized some of you. Some of you are looking forward to your baptism, so when you let that water run over your hands, just let it tell you how much God loves you. Let us pray. Dear God, you did make us, every one of us, and you made these children through these waters that we call baptism, you were there to tell us that we never can stray and get away from your love. You always love us, you've always named us, and you're claiming us. May these children know how much they are loved in your name. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, children. Children in kindergarten through fifth grade may go to Children's Church through these doors, where you're welcome to stay and worship with your families here in the sanctuary. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Hear these words. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. 
Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we begin this morning with Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. I say churches because scholars think that there were three churches that that were there in Turkey, what was at the time called Asia Minor, and that Paul had a hand in starting all of these churches. You see, last week Rob preached to us from the letter to the church at Ephesus, but like he said, that letter probably went out to a lot of churches, and we just happened to get our hands on the one that ended up in the mailbox in Ephesus. But this letter, this letter to the Galatian churches, is more pointed, it's more specific, and it's probably written that way because Paul had a hand in starting those churches, like I said, and he was writing a letter to these churches he started to try to refocus them, to try to bring them back to their original vision, but he was writing to bring us, all churches, back to the original vision, to bring us into the focus of the love of Jesus Christ and the unity that that brings. You see, when starting these churches, Paul probably came in, told his testimony about Jesus being revealed to him on the Damascus Road, set a vision, laid a foundation for teaching and preaching and organization in these churches, and then left them to their own devices to begin to do ministry throughout Asia Minor Minor and the world. But it was in his absence, after he left that pulpit there in those churches in Galatia, that other evangelists began to come in. They began to teach and preach different things. They tried to reshape the gospel that Paul had taught. You see that Luke and Rob hurried back from annual conference. It's because they wanted to make sure the person in their pulpit wasn't trying to reshape what we were doing here today. I'm just kidding. Now, these evangelists that were coming in and out of these churches in Galatia, some scholars call them evangelists, others call them Judaizers. They came in and said, in order to be Christians, in order to be a member of these churches, it's going to require a lot of laws, a lot of discipline. You have to begin to follow the Jewish purity culture. Now, for these Gentiles at these churches, that would have been difficult They said you have to begin to follow the Torah and that all of the males in your churches need to be circumcised. Now when Paul heard this news, he was was upset. He was frustrated. He wrote back a letter, and that's the letter we get today. He wrote back admonishing these churches and telling them not to believe the other gospels that these evangelists were bringing to them. 
but to remain true to the gospel of Christ, whose message is love and unity. Now, throughout this letter, Paul is reminding these churches that he at one time was a high-ranking Jewish leader and official. He knew the law, but after knowing Christ, he, he left that all behind. He also talks about how he stood against the hypocrisy of other well-known early Christian leaders as they tried to compel people to follow Jewish customs as well as Jesus. And then he sets about proving what the church of Jesus formed by love actually looks like. And that's where we find these six verses that we get today, some hotly contested verses here in the New Testament. In these six verses, Paul wants the church to know that they were formed, created, and supported by the love of Jesus. He stresses to them that they are no longer under the tutelage of the Jewish law, but instead bound together by the faith in Jesus Christ. The early four verses in this passage are pretty easy for us to digest and swallow, and it would have been easy for those churches too. You could almost hear them saying, Now, Paul, what you're saying is, I can eat whatever I want, I can dress how I want. I don't have as many rules to follow. Well, that sounds like a pretty good, good deal to me. But then their eyes kept reading down the letter, and there were verses 28 and 29. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to their promise. Uh-oh. This would have upset the status quo in, this, in these churches and in our churches. You can almost hear the questions coming up. Um, yes, Paul, that, that's great, but if there are no distinctions, how are we supposed to know who to let into our pews and who to leave out? And the list goes on and on. You see, People still interpret and ask questions about these. Some interpret it in what I think to be a thin and hurtful way, which is called supersessionism. This is an anti-Semitic term. It means that when they read Paul's verses here, they believe that Christians have superseded the Jews as God's chosen people. But I don't believe that's what Paul is saying. I think Paul is trying to say that within the bounds of these churches he started and within the bounds of this church, that there should no longer be delineations of belief between people, that we are all counted among the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach and the promise given to Abraham by God. Others go on and are afraid that Paul is taking away all the things that make us different, that make us unique, that make us ourselves, that by abolishing all the things that mark us as different, that our world will become monolithic and gray and boring. It is this, this uniqueness, this difference, that reminds me of a story by a great poet. He writes about a group of people, people that have just a slight difference, and they use that to, to keep people at an arm's length. This poet starts his poem this way. Now the star-bellied sneeches had bellies with stars, and the plain-bellied sneeches had none upon nars. And I like to think of sneeches while I walk down the beaches. This poet was Dr. Seuss, and his poem about sneeches is, is one that I've loved since I was a child. You see, in this poem, there are two groups of people, sneeches, if you will. They all look the same except for one small, small difference. 
Some snitches have on their belly a small green star, and the ones with the star see themselves as a little bit better. They raise their children in such a way that says, we keep those other snitches at an arm's length, and we don't invite them to the Frankfurter roast, God forbid. Finally, those snitches without stars on their bellies get frustrated. They find someone that could furnish a star on their belly, and suddenly everyone looks the same. Now the ones that had a star originally are upset. How are we supposed to differentiate ourselves? So they remove their star. Then the other group decides, well, we'll remove our star. So the first group puts a star back on. They put one back on, take off, put on, until suddenly they all start laughing. Because no one can remember who had a star on their belly in the first place and who didn't. Now some have one star, some have two, some have none, but they all are together, unique in their own way, but bound as one body of sneetches. You see, Paul in this passage is not asking us to abolish uniqueness. He's imploring us to come together in unity despite our differences. Paul is not saying, everyone, become all the same. Instead, he's saying, we are all part of a body of Christ. And when we gather as that body, and when we worship as that body, and when we feast as that body, we will not be divided by our earthly distinctions, but we will stand shoulder to shoulder with all people without exception because of the world-changing love of God that was imparted to us before time even began and at our baptism. The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann says, the reason this passage is so difficult for some people is that it triggers in us our human anxieties. All humans are designed to try to achieve, to try to stand out, to try to find people that are like them, a tribe, if you will. That's where the old adage, birds of a feather flock together, comes from. They think it, it's part of this brotherly, familial, tribal love, this filial love that would have been common at this time. And you see, that's a great love. It's one to be held on to. But if we continue to make our circles smaller and smaller, we make our groups only with people that look like us, that sound like us, that love like us, that believe like us, then we become more and more antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is afraid of in these churches in Galatia and in our churches today. He's worried that if one group holds on to the practices of Judaism and the other to the Gentile practices with only nothing in common, then they will begin to splinter off, build new buildings, start their own churches, that friends that once sat in the pews next to one another will be divided and have to pick sides. And Paul doesn't want to see the body of Christ splinter. The famous civil rights leader and theologian Howard Thurman describes Paul's hopes and fears this way. He says, The experience of a common worship of God is such a moment. It's such a moment when all people can come together and begin to take the first steps towards love, a love that is common and sharing of a sense of mutual worth and value. And that's such a beautiful picture but Thurman goes on to say that this connection that Jesus intended in churches and that Paul is asking for is gone and devoid in most American churches and world churches. Because as time has gone on, we've begun to separate ourselves based on race, on status, on gender, on ideology. And we justify separating ourselves and splintering the body of Christ by saying, 
well, they would just prefer to worship with people more like them, and I just prefer to worship with people more like me. And because of this, Thurman says that the result of this separation is this, that the one place, the one place, the church, in which normal free contacts might have been most naturally established, a place in which the relations of the individual to their God would take priority over the conditions of class, race, power, status, and wealth, or the like, that this place, that the church, is now one of the chief instruments for guaranteeing barriers. How unfortunate. So when Paul tells those churches in Galatia to live like there are no distinctions, he's saying this to remind them that Christ did not stand in opposition to those people that they deemed different. No, Christ died for those people that they deemed different, just as he died for them too. Paul is urging them and frankly urging us to move towards connection rather than division, to not silo ourselves based on identity, and to not become instruments for building barriers, but instead to become an example for all the world for what unity would look like. But sometimes the simplest commands are the hardest to follow. And when Paul begins to strip away all the things that we store up for ourselves, the things that we use to form our identity in something other than Christ's love, we decide to dig in our heels, maybe we build new buildings, write petitions and bylaws, point fingers at people we see as different, because we're afraid if we let them in, we might lose our idealized, structured, manicured facade of identity that we made for ourselves, something that is other than Christ's love. Last week, Rob talked about C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, specifically Lewis's understanding and, and explanation of hell. It was called a gray town, one that was ever expanding from the inside because neighbors could no longer bear to live next door to neighbors, and everyone got what they wanted. But Lewis's story goes on. It goes on to talk about the other side of the afterlife. You see, as the gray town expanded out, there was a little bus stop that people didn't pay too much attention to. And every day, a bus ran from that little gray town to a place called the Valley of the Shadow of Life. Unlike the town, the valley was vibrant and beautiful. It wasn't gray. There ran a river that was peaceful, and in the distance, mountains that extended up to the heavens. Can you picture it? It's not hard in Asheville. And as they got off the bus, the tourists from the gray town suddenly became like spirits because everything in the valley was so permanent, so real. Even standing there hurt their feet. The blades of grass were so vibrant. And there they had a choice. People came down from the mountains to meet them, a whole different kind of being, something permanent, something real. And they gave an option to those tourists getting off the bus. You can climb the mountain. You can go further up and further in to the love of God. Or you can get back on the bus and go back to the gray town where everything is the same and you can have whatever you'd like. The narrator watches as people either make their choice to make the difficult journey through the valley further up and further in to God's love or get back on the bus. One of them is an artist the artist stands there, he's trying to make up his mind, he's on his way towards the valley, and then he decides, 
well, no one there will value my paintings. There are no possessions up in the heavens. And so I'm going to stay here. I'm going to go back to my studio I've created in the gray town and continue painting and continue selling art. Another is a great big tall ghost who lived his life with excellence. He did everything that he could to love people. And he sees across from him a man that has come down to help him across. He says, how did you get up to the mountains? You lived a debaucherous life. You even killed someone. And the man said, I left the gray town and surrendered to the love that I found. The tall ghost couldn't accept that. He said, I did everything right. I'm supposed to be on that side. And instead, frustrated, he gets back on the bus and leaves. And finally, there's a man, a man who sees a former love. She's come down off the mountain to try to get him and, and bring him with her. She wants him to come further up and further in to love. But he only wants her love for himself. He doesn't want anyone else's love. He doesn't want to share that love. And so when she refuses to get back on the bus and go with him, frustrated, he leaves. This is where we find ourselves today, church. We find ourselves at a place between two worlds, on a bus between the already and the not yet. Who will we be? Will we be a church that is moving towards deeper division, clinging to the things that give us identity, comfort, and satisfaction? Or will we begin the difficult journey further up and further into the reality of God's love towards a church whose doors and pews are open to all, where the clothes on our backs, the color of our skin, the people we love are all unimportant, and the only true, unifying, all-encompassing love of Jesus will bind us together and all the world and all the company of heaven, all those unique stars in the sky and sands on the beaches. One body held together by love, a love poured out with a generous hand. My hope is for the latter. Amen.